And he has committed to us. Here, here's the strength of it. Christ did this. He accomplished this work. And he has committed to us this word of reconciliation that you can have a right relationship with the God of the universe, which is the one thing you must truly have. Oh, how the world runs after all its other relationships. And, and relationships are wonderful. We were designed for them. But they base their life around every other relationship. And when they do that, apart from God, they taint all the rest of their relationships, which is why you see the mess that this world is in relationally. Welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, a ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you've joined us in weeks past, you know Pastor Chris has been going through a series of messages that he's entitled, Topics for Tough Times. Last time he went over the topic of hope, and this week he'll be walking through the topic of evangelism. And a message called Evangelism, the Gospel Cannot Be Quarantined. In this message, he'll give us a definition of evangelism as the Holy Spirit-empowered proclamation of the good news concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ to sinners who are commanded to respond in repentance and faith. If you would, please grab your Bible and join us as we begin this first part of this message. When we get stretched, when things are difficult, it can be easy for us to focus inward, even if we're seeking to work things out spiritually, to begin to kind of circle the wagons and focus on the things that are right around us, and sometimes to forget the urgency of the proclamation of the truth of the person and work of Christ to a world that desperately needs to hear it, certainly in times like these. So I'd like to just take some time to work our way through what the Bible has to say about the importance of evangelism, the, the, the structure of evangelism, the, the really the overall passion and emphasis for evangelism that the Christian needs to have. And in doing so, my prayer is that we will be encouraged. Now, there are a few things like evangelism to challenge us, convict us, and maybe even sometimes discourage us when we think of, well, I'm just not the evangelist that I would like to be, or I pass up opportunities that I should take. And, and that is true. It's true for all of us. But my prayer tonight is that you would be encouraged, that you would be challenged, yes, but strengthened, built up in your desire to proclaim the truth of the gospel so that a desperate world, a world that is dark, despairing, hopeless, ultimately, will be able to understand and, and, and have every opportunity to place faith and trust in the only one who can save them. So I'd like to begin by reading from Romans chapter 10. We'll, we'll be all over in various passages tonight, but Romans 10 probably lays the groundwork for the necessity of evangelism more urgently, perhaps, than, than any other passage. And, and very clearly, Romans 10, beginning in verse 8, the Apostle Paul is, is talking about the nature of righteousness by faith, or how one enters into the righteousness of God. It's not by works, it's by the word of God. And so he, he transitions from that truth into the necessity then of the proclamation of that word. So in verse 8 of Romans 10, Paul says this, what does it say then? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching. And that's going to be a key word for us, preaching. Evangelion is, is the word, and it really drives our word evangelism. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. 
For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then really getting to the point. So if it is true that the word of God is this powerful, if it is true that all who call on the name of the Lord as they're presented the truth of the gospel will be saved, then what is our response? Verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Now, I was exposed to the world of public evangelism when I was relatively young. I was about seven years old. I didn't grow up in a Christian home, but at about seven, my parents came to a radical conversion in Christ out of drugs, out of kind of the, the hippie subculture, all of those things. And their transformation was extremely radical. They went really from, from doing drugs and all the things of, you know, uh, of the, the movements of that time to actually uh, evangelizing on the campus of the University of Arizona. We, they came to Christ and we were living in Tucson, Arizona at the time. They were very new believers. They joined a church that was active in evangelizing the campus, and they immediately began not only attending church, but also going, uh, going out on weekends and doing evangelism. And so every Saturday, we would head over to the campus, we would get our packet of tracts, and we would walk around the campus handing them out. Now, it was the adult's job to do the talking, while my brother and I, my older brother and I, we just stuck out our hands with a tract to every person that we passed by. Now, it didn't matter to us whether they took the track or not, although it was pretty hard to resist a little child standing there trying to hand you a little track. And it didn't matter whether they read it or simply stuffed it in the trash right away. So as a young child, really even pre my own conversion, handing out tracks was just kind of something you did, but it was something that I was exposed to very early. Now, I went from those sorts of experiences to, I, I came to Christ when I was about 10, and so really salvation had meaning to me and evangelism had greater meaning. And by the Lord's grace, I was placed as we moved from Tucson, Arizona to San Diego, California in a youth group that had a high school ministry of door-to-door -door witnessing. So our youth pastor would take us, he'd load us up in a van, he would drop us off on the street in pairs, and we would walk around with, back then I think we were using, uh, uh, I forget which track we were using, um, oh, the four spiritual laws is what we use, just going up. These are, the, you know, these are the basic tenets of the gospel. We would go two by two, and he would drive around the streets making sure that we didn't get harmed there in San Diego, California. And that made a big difference to me. It mattered more then about what people thought and getting up the courage to talk to someone while walking up to their door, after you walk up to the door and trying to share the gospel was a whole lot different than just handing out a track on the campus as a young, you know, as a young child who didn't really care. Now, I became more and more aware as I got older that most people didn't want me to be on their door. They didn't want to hear about Christianity. And so it was difficult indeed as I got older to continue on in that pattern. And yet I gained strength from my peers and from the leaders who participated with me. And I learned to actually enjoy the camaraderie that we shared as we went from door to door, as well as the opportunity to actually proclaim my faith, to grow in strength and learning how to to teach or to talk about those truths, which really were meaningful to me. But, but I will admit that in ninth, 10th grade, it was a bit mechanical. I was really just trying to get out the right words and phrases, and I didn't have really the resources to go much beyond just simply a presentation of the basics of the gospel. And if somebody, you know, somebody tried to fend me off by making excuses or, or took the conversation another way, it wasn't a whole lot that I was able to do. And yet, this was an excellent way to prepare me for the greater challenge that was to come. 
Because in that same year, where actually the second year that we moved to California, I stopped going to the very small Christian school that I had been part of, about 15 of us in a little mobile home where you'd put up a little flag after you, when you had a question and you just worked your way through endless, they were called paces back then, I think, endless uh, packets of, of information on the various subjects with really no teaching at all. I moved from that to a huge 2,500-person public high school and it took me weeks in that public high school just to find my first Christian friend. I was so afraid of the people that were there, I wouldn't even go to the lunch courtyard area. It's outside. We were in California. Uh, but I wouldn't even walk through the, the kind of the gates that led to that because I didn't know anybody and wasn't even sure where everything was. Finally, one of the friend, my friends in the youth group said, look, I'm going to see Steve. He was a big, tall guy. I'm going to be standing up uh, right, by the, right by the entranceway that leads into that lunch, lunch area, and I will, I'll take you in there because he knew that I went to school, but he'd never seen me at lunch. So finally, after a couple of weeks, I found him. He escorted me in. We began to have lunch with him, and eventually there was a group of us from, from the small youth group that we were a part of that began to meet in the mornings and pray, and then also we would encourage each other and challenge each other to begin to try to share the gospel on that high school campus. And I started to spread my wings a bit there, starting to share, this is my sophomore year, starting to share a bit more and more of a personal context, not the door-to-door, -door, uh, impersonal, but learning a little bit more how to begin, just, just the start of how to share with my fellow classmates. Then yet another thing happened that really rocked me to the core, but really took me to a whole nother level when it came to actually sharing the gospel. My parents moved from from California, from San Diego, and that strong youth group with lots of people to help to Colorado. And I thought that when I went there, my life was over. I didn't have my strong youth group. I didn't have the mentor that I loved, the youth pastor that I loved. I went to a church that really didn't have much of a youth group at all and, and not a lot of strong teaching there, particularly for the teens. But what I found was, even though I was afraid, I was far away, I, I was uncertain as to really how I would walk out my Christian life, I immediately began attending a new large public high school in downtown Colorado Springs. And I found that my training, the, the training that I'd been given, the encouragement and strengthening that had been provided for me, and, and then really a newfound need to rely upon the Lord really drove me to the, some of the richest times of evangelism that certainly I'd had up to that point, and, and maybe some of the richest in my life. I spent a lot of my high school years, junior and uh, my junior year and senior year, really just talking about the things of Christ with most of my friends, who most of whom claimed to be Christians, but once we pressed a little bit further, found that they didn't believe in the Bible, they didn't believe in, in that God had created the earth, and uh, so many different things that they didn't believe at all. Some, some didn't even believe in the substitutionary atonement. And so we would spend time uh, you know, debating ev evolution and creation in our uh, biology class. We were reading all kinds of you know, just ugly books in English. And so I'd read those books and we'd sit in the back and talk about the, the moral uh, correctness and, and how a Christian should respond to those things. In fact, we, we would talk about it so much that my English teacher finally came back and said, would you stop arguing? And said, we're not arguing. We're talking about these very principles in this book. Uh, she goes, it's not profitable because we weren't talking about in a way that she thought was good. We were talking about Christ and she didn't like Christ at all. Now, during this phase of, of witnessing, I was passionate, but I, I would concede a bit arrogant. I didn't care as deeply for the souls of my classmates as I should have. And sometimes it was just about the argument, just about the debate. And that kind of fueled some of my zeal. But I am incredibly grateful for the foundation that that laid for me, both the time early in high school, even the time early on in, in my life as a young person, 
And then all the way up as I was challenged and encouraged to evangelism, to remember and, and to constantly have on my mind the need to share the gospel. I'm incredibly grateful for that. And although my practice of evangelism has not always been as zealous as I would like, I've missed opportunities that I desperately wish that I had taken. But over the years, my heart has softened even more. And so now as I stand at a door, at a, at a college campus, or by a hospital bed, I am, by the Lord's grace, more often than not, driven by a love and compassion that longs to see that person delivered from eternal hell and satisfied in a love and a true devotion to Christ. And I am so thankful for those who are brave enough and wise enough to teach me the truths of evangelism and press me to do it, even when I didn't want to, even when I was afraid, even when I was lazy. And I would love to pass those things on to all who will listen. It is one of the reasons we do the things we do, even as a youth ministry. We want to lay that foundation. Everyone won't necessarily go door-to-door witnessing the rest of their life. Everyone will not evangelize in, in one particular way. But laying the foundation of both the proper understanding of the truth of the gospel, as well as the proper living out the actual practice of sharing the gospel, is something that will stick with our young people forever, that will stick with you who are watching tonight forever. And so I urge you, as I share this message about the truths of evangelism, that you would be carefully considering how can I put this into practice and how can I take hold of what the church has to offer? Because we don't just do it as, as a youth group. We do it as, as in our college ministry. We, we do it for our adults, trying to provide opportunities to share the gospel in kind of more public settings, as well as learning the fundamentals of sharing it in private settings. And again, I will say that. What I learned in sharing the gospel more publicly, going door to door, had a direct influence and a direct corollary on my ability to share in relationship and, and with those that were my friends, and it emboldened me to do so. If I could walk up to a door, then oftentimes I was willing to be able to talk to someone that I knew well. So that's my prayer tonight. It's not simply that we would learn more about evangelism. You know most of these things. Not simply that we would, would be convicted, once again, of what we're not doing in evangelism but that hearing the truths of the gospel presented again, the urgent need for people to know their savior, that we and you and I would again catch a vision and a passion for sharing this truth in every venue possible. And certainly at a time like this, certainly at a time where the world is, is, is recovering at some levels from this, this, this pandemic, which has, has knocked some of the props out from under them, but now they will seek to replace that with their own human ingenuity by putting into place saying, look, we as humans have triumphed again. And now we must prepare people to, to hear and to understand the nature of their desperate need before a holy God. So what is, what is evangelism? What, what will we learn tonight? Evangelism is an essential work of the church that is informed by the truth of the person and work of Christ and fueled by a passion for God's glory, a love for Christ, and a, seer, a sincere compassion for people. Evangelism is an essential work of the church that is informed by the truth of the person and work of Christ, fueled by a passion for God's glory and a love for Jesus and a sincere compassion for people. We evangelize because Christ is great and people are in great need. So let's begin as we have each of these topics with a definition because we're doing a really a topical approach to these. We're not staying in one passage. We need to draw from Old and New Testament to really learn the nature of what it means to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. So here's a working definition. Definition of evangelism would be the Holy Spirit-empowered proclamation 
of the good news concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ to sinners who are commanded to respond in repentance and faith. Again, the Holy Spirit-empowered proclamation of the good news concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ to sinners who are commanded to respond in repentance and faith. Let's work our way through the definition. This will set the foundation for the rest of the things that we'll say for this evening. As with each one of these topics, they are Holy Spirit empowered. That is, these are for true believers. Certainly, it's not really evangelism if you're not a Christian. You can't truly urge people to respond to a God that you haven't responded to. You can't long for them to be transformed when you haven't had that transforming, that renewal, that being made into a new creature that the Holy Spirit provides. And you certainly can't do it to the glory of God because no unbeliever does anything for the glory of God. Now, it doesn't mean you can't say the words of the gospel. And that's an amazing thing. There are people who are unbelievers who proclaim the words of the gospel. And because the gospel is the power of God for salvation, God can and does use those to save people. But it's not evangelism when an unbeliever does it. Believers evangelize. Believers proclaim the good news, point people to Christ, longing for sinners to come into right relationship with Christ through repentance and faith. So it's Holy Spirit empowered. 1 Thessalonians 1.5, the Apostle Paul speaks to this. He says, for our gospel did not come to you in word only. See, an unbeliever could bring the gospel in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. We will see that your own personal walk with God does have an influence on the power of the gospel in that sense. And so that is part of what God uses in its proclamation. But it is the Holy Spirit that produces full conviction. The Holy Spirit that brings power because it's the Holy Spirit that even works within you to drive you towards evangelism and to build in you a life that testifies to the nature of the great message that you are proclaiming. So he says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you by, for your sake. All of this by the Holy Spirit. He says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So everywhere it is the Spirit of God that empowers evangelism, that makes it effective, that uses the truth of the word proclaimed. So it is a Holy Spirit-empowered proclamation of the good news. Evangelism is first and foremost a proclamation, an announcement, a speaking forth of the truth about Jesus. Now, it's not to be separated from a transformed life, but it is always more. It isn't true evangelism until the gospel message has been spoken. Now, again, you, you can live a life that, is, that gives testimony to the greatness of Christ, but unless you actually give testimony to the greatness of Christ, no one will be able to know why it is that your life is the way that it is. You could be a good Mormon. You could be a, a very zealous Muslim. If you are honest and upright and, and, and truthful, but you must proclaim the truth. And that's the nature of evangelism. It is spoken. Now, it can be written or it can be by radio, other things, but it is a, it is a proclamation of this truth. That's what the word, you and galizo, that's the verb, all right, to, to proclaim the good news. That's what it fundamentally meant in Greek. Now, this very word, this euangelizo, really became a technical term for the pro proclamation of the good news about Jesus, to evangelize, to tell the good news concerning the person and work of Christ. So this isn't any good news that we proclaim. This is the good news of salvation from sin and death and hell through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, 
a gospel. That's a word we use. That is the message, the content of what we believe. This is the gospel I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as the first importance what I also received, that Christ also died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the nature of the gospel, the person and work of Christ as revealed in the truths and principles of the word of God. So it's a Holy Spirit-empowered proclamation of the good news about uh, concerning Jesus Christ, to the personal work of Christ, to sinners. You see, the proclamation of the good news about Christ presupposes the need for every person to have that good news. That is, the bad news is bound up in this good news. The bad news is that you, every person ever born, is sinful. They are tainted by sin. They are under the judgment of God, and they are on their way to eternal hell. Unless there is an intervention and a spiritual transformation, every person would end up being eternally punished. You don't have to do anything to end up in eternal hell. You are already on your way there. What has to be done or what has to happen is that something has to be done in you for you to escape this eternal punishment. And that work is done through the proclamation of the gospel. Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all, so Paul says, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, by our very nature, not simply one sin that we commit, but by the very nature of our hearts, a rebellion against God, or by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's everybody dead in trespasses and sins. So we preach the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ to sinners, those who have rebelled against the holy God and are on their way to hell. The next part of the definition, who are commanded, who are commanded to respond in repentance and faith. Certainly we appeal, we beg, we urge, we convince as best we can. But responding to the gospel call of the God of the universe is not an option. It is a command. In nearly every place in Scripture, it is presented that way. Acts 17.30 Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. This is God's declaration. He commands them to do so. And yes, again, He woos them and encourages them and, and convinces them. But fundamentally, He commends them, and that's what we do as well. We are commanded to repent and to believe. This is the fundamental response of the heart to God as we are to believe in his son. It's a command. So we, it's a Holy Spirit empowered proclamation of the good news concerning the person and work of Christ to sinners who are commanded to respond in repentance and faith. The gospel carries along with it a call to a particular response. It is not evangelism if we just tell them what Jesus did and don't explain what they need to do in response. That is part and parcel of the gospel. We talk about the person and work of Christ. We recognize that we are proclaiming it to sinners who are dead in trespasses and sins and on their way to eternal hell. And part of the gospel is to call them to response. When Jesus came preaching in Mark 1.15, this is what he said. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's always the command that goes along with it. 
The command is a command to repent and to believe, to respond. And so the response must be given. Here's how you respond. This is what it means to repent. This is what it means to have faith in the truth of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that's the definition. Let's talk about the message. I would be remiss if I spent my entire time talking about how to do evangelism and to find evangelism, and I didn't work us through the core message of what, eva- of what evangelism actually is. What is that good news? And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here tonight. These are things that prayerfully you are familiar with, that you have heard over and over. But I want to remind you of the core message. And you can proclaim this message a lot of different ways about the person and work of Christ. We teach it when we do our evangelism implosion and other things in a particular structure. I'm going to give you that structure now, but you can enter into a discussion of the gospel through any of these points. But I would say this, each of these points is essential to a proper overview or proper understanding of what the gospel is. First, there is God, his existence and character. You must tell people that there is truly a God. You can't tell them about Jesus Christ who died for their sins to put them in right relationship with who? With God. With what kind of God? The God of the Mormons, the God of Islam, the God of, of, of some other cult, the God of some other religion? No, the God of the Bible. It is essential that they know that he exists and that he is the creator and owner of everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's the most fundamental principle of scripture is that God was eternally pre-existing in the beginning and from him came everything that is. Can't leave that out of the gospel. God is the creator and owner of everything and he is a holy God. You have to include his character. Otherwise, there is no reason for salvation. If we are saved from our sin against a God who is not holy, then it is optional as to whether or not we would take hold of the work of his son. If he's not truly holy, then there is a chance that we would somehow be able to appease him and end up in heaven anyway. Remember a fascinating conversation I had in Nigeria on the beach with a Muslim. And he'd been wandering along the beach and we were building a sandcastle and he stopped and we started talking. And as we worked our way through the discussion, I asked him, I said, so you believe in one God like I do? He said, yes. I said, you also believe that that God provides or, or makes a way of salvation? He said, yes. Said, so the question I asked him was, so you are a sinner, right? I mean, you do wrong things. And he easily admitted that. He says, and your God, Allah, will judge you for those sins. Yes. What did, and this was my question, what did Allah do? What did this God do? What did God do that made you able to be acceptable to him? Because he's holy, isn't he? And of course, that is one of the primary tenets of Islam, that God is holy, that he is just. And I said, so what enables you to be able to have a relationship, why can he pardon you from the wrong things you do? He goes, well, it's because of the good things we do. If we accomplish these certain things, then that appeases Allah's wrath and enables us to be saved in that sense. I said, are you perfect? Have you ever done any of those things that he asked you to do and not failed at all? Have you ever sinned in your thoughts or sinned in your thinking? And he goes, of course I have. I said, then your God is not just if he allows you to be saved and you are not perfect. He stopped for a minute and he said, well, he's a forgiving God. I said, on the basis of what does he forgive? Where's the justice? Who paid the penalty? You aren't perfect. You didn't accomplish that work. And that took him back a bit. We had a long discussion about the nature then of holiness and the need for a perfect sacrifice, some true payment, a just holy payment. No, he didn't at that moment, you know, somehow say, wow, you're right. And put faith and trust in Christ. But my prayer is that made him think. If God is holy, 
And he cannot accept any sin in his presence where he ceases to be God. He cannot have a relationship with it. And so the fact that he is holy drives the need for salvation for those who are sinful. So God is holy, he is just, and therefore requires perfect obedience. God is love as well, and therefore desires men to be saved. All those are vital. He's not only holy and just and requires perfection. He is a God who loves and longs to be in relationship. He delights in relationship with his creatures and so provides a way for them to be saved. That's God, his existence and character. Then man, his character and his penalty, his punishment. Man is sinful. We know this. Again, I'm not working through all the scriptures here because we just don't have time. But we know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know that all men are dead. I read from Ephesians chapter two. Everyone has broken God's law. Our hearts are evil. It's not just that we do sinful things. Our hearts, everything we do is tainted because it falls short of God's glory. We aren't doing it to please and honor him. Our hearts are evil. Our deeds are sinful. And therefore there must be a reckoning. It's not simply that God will judge us for our sin. It's that we are justly judged. We deserve eternal death in hell because God stated at the beginning that the wages of sin is death. The payment, the just payment for any rebellion against the law of God is death. That is eternal separation and punishment because of a violation of God's perfect and holy character. It's not just that we will go to hell. We will all deserve to be there because our hearts are tainted and no thing that we do is actually fully good or good in the eyes of God at all. Scripture is clear. Even our righteousness in light of his perfect holiness is like filthy rags because there's nothing perfect about it. His holiness is perfect. Our best deeds are tainted with sin. And so we are deserving of eternal hell, which is full separation from God for eternity, as well as the punishment of refusing to respond to the salvation that he provided in his son. And no one is capable of doing good works, which will enable him to deserve salvation. As a finite human being, as a tainted fallen human being, there's nothing we can do to earn our way. Nothing is sufficient. As I talked to my Muslim friend, there's nothing that he could do that would actually earn the salvation or the forgiveness of a holy God because he couldn't be perfect and no one can. Our best deeds are worthless. Even one of our sins would merit eternal hell and each of us remains sinful to the day that he dies. But then there's Christ, his character and his work. Jesus is God himself, yet he became sinless men. He died on the cross to provide us salvation. That is a perfect sacrifice. He's the only one who lived with no sin. So he's the only one who could take the, make the payment for sin because of his own perfection. Any man who tried to do that would have been tainted with some sin and unable to make a perfect sacrifice. It was a sacrifice that was in our place. We call it an atoning sacrifice. He made it for us. He didn't need it for himself. He was perfect. So he wasn't making atonement for his own sin. He was making atonement for our sin. He was paying the price, enabling his, through his death, for our sin to be covered so that God could see us through Christ's sacrifice and see us with Christ's very righteousness. That is, he died to cover our sin, to make payment for it, and then he granted to us his very own righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he God, at him Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin. That is to take the penalty and punishment for sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God's right or Christ's righteousness imputed or credited to our account, our sins credited to his, even though he never committed our sins and we never truly had his perfect righteousness. This is God's justice and his perfect provision 
for our sinfulness, an actual atonement, a real payment made, his wrath then removed from us, his righteous wrath, a propitiatory sacrifice, we call it his wrath against sin was completely taken in Christ. All of that wrath poured out upon us. And then his resurrection from the dead. He overcame sin and death and hell by bursting forth from the tomb, alive forevermore. The grave could not hold him. That's Christ. So we have God, the creator known of everything, holy, just, and loving. Man, tainted, sinful, fall, and deserving of eternal hell with nothing that he can do to earn his way into the right into the righteousness of God. And then we have Christ, the perfect God-man who made provision for us, living a perfect life, making an atoning sacrifice on the cross and bursting forth from the tomb to provide us with new life. And what's the response? What response is every person commanded to give? And that is to repent of sin. What does it mean? It means to recognize your sinfulness and guilt, to agree that you deserve your condemnation because of God's justice and your sinfulness, to desire to turn from sin. It's a hard attitude. That desires to turn away from that sin because we recognize its violation of the character of God and to seek forgiveness. That we turn to God, crying out to him to forgive us on the basis of the work of Christ. So we repent of sin and we believe then in Jesus. These are flip sides of the same coin. You can't cling to a Christ while Christ while clinging to your sin. You cannot add Christ into your sinful life. You are to say, I reject that sinful life. I turn away from sin and I turn to Jesus believing that he is God and man, believing that he died in your place, believing that he rose from the dead and that he is your Lord and master, humbling yourself underneath his mighty hand, following after him. That's what it means to believe in him, that I will follow you. I will trust what you have done and forsake myself to follow your way, to give up my life to take yours. Luke 9, 23, he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's repenting, believing, to follow after Jesus, and then to believe that Jesus is the only way. You cannot add Jesus to a pantheon of other gods. So I will, sure, I'll take the sacrifice that he provided, and I'll take this God and that God, and I'll put them all together, and then I'll have what I need. No, Jesus is exclusive. If you believe in any other gods, if you put your faith in any other means of salvation, then you cannot put your faith in Christ. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father but through me. doesn't matter how sincere people are. doesn't matter what other religion they were raised up in and how often they go to whatever kind of services they would have or whatever ways that they worship or however however they give themselves over to that God. If it's not Jesus, there is no way to the Father. There is no hope for eternal life. And if it is not only Jesus, then there can be no salvation. So that's the nature of the gospel. That's the message. God just holy, righteous, and loving man, sinful, tainted, separated from God, unable to save himself. Jesus, perfect, holy, making an eternal, atoning, substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf and rising from the dead. And the response is to repent, recognize our sin, believe we are condemned, turn to God to be forgiven, and then to take hold of the person and work of Christ by humbly submitting to him and recognizing that his provision is necessary for salvation. That's our message. And over and over and over, we proclaim it. And my prayer is that you will become more and more familiar with that message the longer you go on. We'll talk about that. That that would just flow from you. Anytime you are around someone, that those things would come to mind and you could work your way through that. Again, 
There's much depth to that. But the actual proclamation of it is not a long, involved process. Those things are true. You have to define your terms. You have to do your best to make things clear. But then fundamentally, it is, it is the Spirit of God that does His work. Well, what's the expectation? Next on our outline, what's the expectation of evangelism? Why, why do we do this? Well, first and foremost, Christ commanded it of us. In Matthew 28, 19, and 20, one of our most familiar verses concerning the nature of evangelism, Jesus left his disciples with this challenge. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. How? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is that they come to Christ. How do they come to Christ? By the preaching of the gospel. So go, we make disciples by preaching the gospel. They are then baptized, and that indicates that they're coming into fellowship with the church, the local church that they are part of teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and along with you always, even to the end of the age. We do this over and over. Proclaim the gospel. They put faith and trust in Christ. They, we bring them into the church. The church is strengthened and built as we teach all that God commanded. And then through the process of the church being built, we continue to press out into our communities, into our workplaces, into the world as a whole, and the process begins all over again. This has been going on since the time that Jesus ascended back to be with the Father. Christ commanded us. Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. It began with the twelve, and now it continues on to us. This is our commission as well. So Christ commanded us, and God's word teaches us that we must do this. This isn't to say that the word of God commands, you know, that Christ commands and the word of God is you know, somehow different than that. Simply, the word of God confirms and commends all that Christ commended. Every part of the rest of the New Testament is, is filled with this command to proclaim the truth of the gospel. Romans 10 that I just read to you. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And how? They have to have someone to preach. They have, the preacher has to be sent. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 21. Paul says, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us. Here, here's the strength of it. Christ did this. He accomplished this work and he has committed to us this word of reconciliation that you can have a right relationship with the God of the universe, which is the one thing you must truly have. Oh, how the world runs after all its other relationships. And, and relationships are wonderful. We were designed for them. But they base their life around every other relationship. And when they do that, apart from God, they taint all the rest of their relationships, which is why you see the mess that this world is in relationally. They define love as anything they want apart from God. And so love, true love, a, a, a fundamental marriage-style love can be between a man and a man now, a woman and a woman, between all kinds of different combinations. Why? Because they've missed this first and foremost relationship with God. You can deny your very identity at its, at its core because the relationship with God has never been established. And it is that relationship which validates and gives understanding to every other relationship that we have. Thank you for joining us today on Grace Maryville Weekly. 
We pray that your heart has been encouraged and your faith has been strengthened by the teaching of God's word. If you would like to find out more about the ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. Online, you will be able to find out more about the many ministries that we offer, including our youth ministry, our women's and men's ministry, as well as our college-aged ministry. Not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries that we do offer, you'll be able to access a full audio archive of messages presented from the pulpit at Grace Community Church. Again, please join us on Friday, where Pastor Chris will conclude this two-part message.